Well, we're in a sermon series going through the book of Acts together, and where we've been lately in chapters 3, 4, and 5, it's really all about one big event, the persecution of the church, because these chapters are filled with opposition, hostility, and suffering. In fact, we know that for the first 300 years, from right here in the book of Acts to about A.D. 300, there were 10 systematic waves of persecution against Christianity in the Roman Empire. So, how could this fledgling movement called Christianity not only survive, but actually thrive in the face of 300 years of persecution? Well, I think we can find the answer in the verses we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 5. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 14. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him which is the sect of the Sadducees and they were filled with indignation, most of your English translations say jealousy, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught But the high priest and those who with him called the council together with all the elders and the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely, the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came to them saying, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you? not to speak in this name. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel 
and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now this is interesting. As you read the book of Acts, you'll find that the apostle Paul, who used to be Saul, was actually trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was discipled by Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the name. This was the leading religious figure in that day. So Gamaliel stands, a teacher of the law, verse 34, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, Keep away from these men. Leave it alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to, say it, nothing. Now, don't make a mistake with the next verse. Gamaliel is not in favor of Christianity. Gamaliel does not believe it any more than anyone else. But what he is is a savvy politician and religious leader. He understands the popularity of Christianity. Jerusalem has been filled with this doctrine. There are a lot of people excited about this and he doesn't want to rock the boat. So he says, just leave it alone. It'll die out like every other movement that comes along. Verse 39, but if it is of God, and he doesn't believe it is, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they'd called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. Who? Say it. Say it again, Jesus. Jesus as the Christ. So what can we see from this chapter that could help us today in all that we're facing as Christians? Well, here's the first thing I want you to see because it is so encouraging. Number one, God is still doing what God has been doing since Jesus rose from the dead. Say, what are you talking about, Brad? Look at verse 14 is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God drawing multitudes of men and women to himself. This is not a little thing. They were increasing, increasing, increasing multitudes of both men and women. What in the world's going on? Why would multitudes of men and women still be coming to faith in Christ despite hostility and opposition and persecution? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus promised to build his church and the book of Revelation confirms it. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And he anticipated resistance 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we don't have to wonder whether Jesus knows how to keep his promise because in the book of Revelation, it's like the curtain of time is pulled back and we're allowed to see the fulfillment of this very promise when John the apostle says in Revelation chapter seven, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, peoples, tongues, and tribes standing before the throne and the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Oh, what a glorious snapshot of where all of history is headed, my friends. But you're not going to know anything about this unless you're reading your Bible. Because the media is certainly not going to tell you anything about this. Trust me. But make no mistake, even though Fox News and CNN News are not talking about this, this message of the gospel is spreading at a breathtaking rate all over the world. God is still doing Acts 5:14, increasingly drawing people to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Of the 7,118 languages in the world today, 1,551 have the entire New Testament translated into their own heart language. Those translations now cover 95% of the world's population have the New Testament in their language. 950 church movements, church growth planting movements are rocking nations around the world even as I speak. In the last five years, Indonesia alone has seen three separate regions explode with 10 to 20,000 house churches. South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, China, India, and Russia now have the largest Christian population after the United States because each one of them now has over 100 million believers in them. Evangelical Christianity, though the media doesn't want you to think it, it's not dying out. Evangel- Here's the mistake. Mainline denominations like the Episcopalians, and I won't name other names, who keep compromising God's word, compromising God's word, compromising God's word, they are dying out at a rapid rate. Evangelical Christianity, those who still believe in God's word and new life in Christ and the message of the gospel are still thriving. Evangelical Christianity is growing at a rate of 2.6% and even faster in those countries that have tried to make it difficult. In fact, illegal, like Iran, Nepal, and Saudi Arabia. Evangelical Christianity in Iran is growing at a rate of 19.6%, despite the hostility and persecution of hardline Islamic regimes. An interrogator in Iran recently admitted to an imprisoned pastor. He said, we know we can't stop the church. We're just trying to slow it down. Why can't they stop it? Because Jesus promised to build it. And God is still doing that through his people all over the world. It is 
unstoppable. 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 Despite increased hostility and persecution, Acts 5.14 is happening all around the world. But God's not the only one doing things. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Unbelievers are still doing, and this is so encouraging. Nothing new under the sun, folks. Unbelievers are still doing what they've always done to try to stop it. When you read your Bible, you're encouraged because you find out this is not the hardest time Christians have ever lived. This is not a new day of hostility. It's always been this way, and God has always worked in spite of it through his people. I think this chapter parallels some of the same things that we still see going on today. So what's going on with unbelievers? Here's the first thing I want you to see. They are filled with suspicion and fear of losing control. I hope you realize the gospel is not just offensive. It is threatening. It is threatening. You are a threat. I know you don't look scary. You don't have a bomb strapped to your chest. You don't look like a terrorist. But they are terrified of us, folks. This message of the gospel and the way you live is threatening to them. It is threatening to human beings, folks, who want to be autonomous, who want to keep things the way they are, who like the status quo, not just in their personal lives, but with the worldview that they hold on to and try to promote any way they can. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is a threat to all of that. Look at verse 17. Then the high priest rose up. Oh, yes, they will. Rose up. And all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. The Greek word right there is the word zealous. That means zeal, passion, or jealousy. Most English translations have jealousy there. So what's the English definition of jealousy? Listen to this. Jealousy is an emotion that is driven by suspicion, fear, and resentment as someone tries to guard or hold on to something they're afraid of losing. I hope you realize, even though they will not admit it, even though they will not admit it, the hostility and persecution against Christianity is driven far more by emotion than it is intellect and reasoning. Just just get that in your head. Realize that. They love to act like, oh, Christianity are the people. These are the people that don't think. They don't reason. They're not smart. They're not educated. They're stupid. They just have a feeling and they take a leap of faith. We are the ones that think and reason and look at evidence and are careful. That's a lie. That's a lie. The human heart is driven by emotion far more than intellect and reasoning because this message threatens the autonomy of a human being who wants to be the person who calls all the shots and in control, but they rarely ever want to admit this. I hope you realize unbelief can be quite irrational, even in the face of facts. That's why do not be surprised when you bring some facts, you show some evidence, you answer their question, and they still just blink and say, uh, no. Unbelief can be quite irrational, even in the face of facts and evidence, because this emotion is what's driving. But just every now and then, you'll have someone be honest enough to admit it, and I love it, and I find it, and I quote it everywhere I go. Thomas Nagel, 
Thomas Nagel is a professor of philosophy and law at New York University, not a Christian, and he says this, I quote, I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. He's afraid of you. We scare them, folks. It's a threat. I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. But then listen to what he says next. My guess is that that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism in our time. You understand what he's saying? See, I hope you realize science and Christianity are not at odds with each other. We are not afraid afraid of science. We are not afraid of science. Scientism, whenever you add an ism to something, usually you've gone awry. When, when scientism steps in and says, no, everything, everything can be explained by what you can see, what you can measure, what you can, there's the problem. We're not afraid of science at all. But here's what he's actually admitting. I hope you realize what he's saying with an honest moment. He says, I have a cosmic authority problem that skews the way I view facts because I already know what I want to believe. And so I hold on to what matches that and I discount the rest. You know what? The Bible has a word for that cosmic authority problem. Original, say it. Say it again. Sin. I hope you realize we are born and every part of us is affected by sin. The thinking process is affected by sin. The emotions are affected by sin. The will, the motives, the desires are all affected by sin. You're not neutral. You can't look at evidence and make intellectual decisions. You are driven already by original sin to say there is no God. I don't want to be there to be a God. And yet you're born with a heart that beats and says, there's gotta be a God, there's gotta be a God, there's gotta be more, there's gotta be more. I need purpose, I need meeting, I need joy, I need peace, but I don't want the answer to be God. This is the conflict that unbelievers live with, folks. That's how we are born. But notice something else that's in this passage that's still going on today. Secondly, they use their authority to try to threaten and intimidate believers into silence. Look at verse 28 again. Did we not strictly command you not, not to teach in this name? The Greek word right there for strictly command, that's a formal statement or a legal injunction. In other words, it's a court order. Did we not give you an illegal injunction? Did we not pass a law? Did we not say this is not permitted? This is illegal. You will be punished. Listen to me. Fines, lawsuits, jobs lost, and public disdain have always surrounded Christianity. This is not a new day. It's the same day that we've always been living in. And so listen to me, 
as we go more and more into the future, we may see more and more legal injunctions. We may see more and more legal injunctions against us, but God is still with us and will continue to work through us by his spirit for his glory. It's unstoppable. If America, if you're upset and thinking, oh, where are we headed in America? We might just be headed to the greatest revival we've ever seen in America because the countries who try to make it illegal and make it harder and harder and harder and harder and actually start killing some Christians see explosive growth of Christianity. The problem in America may be that we've had it too easy for too long. Don't hear me saying I'm praying for persecution Because as a pastor, I know the day may be coming that I will be put in jail for still saying some of the things the Bible says. I'm not looking forward to that. I just had my kitchen redone. (laughs) You know, and it costs money. And I'm hoping to enjoy that. But the day may be coming, folks, that jobs will be lost. Opportunities will be missed. And some of us will be put in prison. But it may be that that's when Americans will say, why would you be willing to lose this? Why would you still believe this? How do you hold on to this? That's what we're seeing in Iran and Nepal and Saudi Arabia who've made it so difficult. It causes people to say, I wanna know more about that. I wanna get a Bible. I wanna learn more about Jesus. These people actually believe this. It's unstoppable. And he's with us. He's with us. He's with us. Don't don't say, I I wish I just had what they had back then. You do. The Holy Spirit. In fact, it's even better. All they had was the Old Testament. We got the entire canon of scripture. We've got direct access to his throne. And we've got the freedom in America right now to gather for worship and park our cars up and down a street and meet in a home for community group. Stop running around like a chicken with your head cut off, acting like it's so bad here. America's still one of the best countries to live in and it's one of the best places to be a Christian in. We still have great freedoms, great resources, great opportunities, and the Holy Spirit living in us. He's raised us up for such a time as this. But I want you to notice something else next that gets right at the heart of it. They refuse to acknowledge the supernatural basis and power of Christianity. Look at it in verse 28 again. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. This one verse has tucked down into it two things that are the very supernatural basis and authority for all of Christianity. Look at me. The resurrection and the name of Jesus. The resurrection and the name of Jesus. The resurrection and the name of Jesus. That's what they're so upset about, folks. Because both have supernatural power and authority that Christianity rests on. That's why the resurrection and the name of Jesus are never optional. They are essential. And that's why the world goes crazy over both. That's what they resist the most, both. Notice they say, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. What doctrine are they talking about? What is the doctrine that the early Christians have spread everywhere from city to city to city to city to city to city, city, folks? It's the resurrection. 
They went everywhere talking about the resurrection. They went into Thessalonica. They went into Corinth. They went into Athens. They stood with the who's who in that day of philosophers and they talked about the resurrection even though they were mocked. And it says in Acts 17, some mocked, some believed and said, we wanna hear more about this. Folks, we got to keep talking about the resurrection and the name of Jesus. The resurrection and the name of Jesus. That's what you see in the book of Acts. 30 times in the book of Acts, the resurrection is mentioned. You can see it in chapter one, two, three, four, five, seven, 13, 10, 17, 22, 23, 26. Almost half of the 28 chapters of Acts mention the resurrection. It's what drove people crazy back then. It's what still drives them crazy today. But here's the deal. It's what puts Christianity in an altogether different category all by itself, unlike other religions. Your doctrine, your doctrine. But there's something else worth noting in this one verse that you can see. I don't know if you picked up on it as I read it, but it stands out. They do not want to say the name of Jesus. Do you notice that? We commanded you not to speak in this man's name and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. What's going on? Why can't they say his name? Have they forgotten it? No, they haven't forgotten it, but they despise it. Oh, listen to me. You can talk about spirituality today. You can even talk about God in fuzzy generic terms, but do not pray in Jesus name and do not talk about the authority and the power and the exclusivity of Jesus that's when they go crazy but this is not new this is what's been happening for centuries but we can't back off on it because there's the power resurrection power and power in Jesus name resurrection power and power in Jesus name do not just have conversations with people about faith in general God in general Talk about Jesus, Jesus. That may be what upsets the person, but that also will be what delivers the person into life and hope and new birth. Jesus' name, Jesus' name, Jesus' name. And that leads right into what I want you to see next. They are convicted and offended by the message of the gospel. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious. That Greek word for furious is a word that means to be cut to the quick, to be stabbed, to be cut to the quick. And it carried along with it the idea of becoming violently and emotionally affected to the point of rage. Have you noticed that? how quickly it escalates. You're like, I I was trying to be nice and just have a conversation, but this is just, they begin to rage against you. Yes, they were furious, violently and emotionally affected to the point of rage because back to my earlier point, this threatens them. This threatens them. This threatens their personal life as well as their worldview that they are holding on to and desperately trying to promote anywhere and any way they can. But notice something else that's been going on for centuries now. And I smiled when I saw it in the text. 
They're convinced that Christianity is on the very verge of dying out. Oh, this is not gonna last long. This is gonna die out. There's no way. That is what's basically going on in verses 35 to 38. Verses 35 to 38. Just leave it alone and it'll die out. It'll die out like every other movement. Movements come, movements go. There have been self-appointed gurus all through history that rise up, claim to be somebody, gather a falling, and when he dies, it dies. Over and over and over again. Just leave it alone and it will die out. That's what Gamaliel is doing, beginning in verse 35, when he stands and takes over the meeting. Gamaliel may have been one of the first people to say that, but he hadn't been the last. This gets repeated over and over and over and over. People predict that Christianity will die out. If Christianity doesn't adjust its views on morality and sexual freedom, it'll die out. It'll die out. It'll die out. It doesn't die out because Jesus promised to build it and his spirit continues to do it through his people. It's not dying out. He just points to two examples that they had of Theodos and Judas and said, you know, leave it alone. When they died, it was dispersed. This will come to nothing. Gamaliel predicted the end of Christianity just a few years after Jesus rose from the dead. But in the 1700s, the French philosopher Voltaire, just before his death said, within 100 years after my death, Christianity will have vanished. It'll be gone, done, over. And in 1966, at the height of Beatlemania, John Lennon made one of the most arrogant and foolish statements probably ever made about Christianity when he said, and I quote, it will vanish and shrink. I'm right and I will be proved right. We are more popular than Jesus now. Well, John Lennon is dead. And the church of Jesus Christ is more alive and well today than ever before because King Jesus is alive, ruling and reigning over the universe, using his spirit to draw men and women to himself in multitudes. Multitudes. In fact, the church of Jesus Christ has probably tripled in size since John Lennon made that arrogant and foolish statement. So, final minutes that I have, let's talk about this. Number three, so what should we as believers be doing today? You know, there's this sense of, oh, hostility is escalating, freedoms are being taken away, legal injunctions are coming our way. Oh, I wish we had a plan. I wish we had a plan. What should we do? What should we do? What should we do? Good news. Right here in this chapter, I see three things the early Christians were doing that I think is exactly what we need to keep doing by God's grace. We don't need to look for another plan. What God was enabling them to do is exactly what we need to do. In fact, I thought it was interesting as I studied and saw, I think the three things they were doing match exactly and parallel the fresh vision that we rolled out five years ago when we said, we wanna be a generation of Christians who have the courage to stand, the confidence to speak up, and a heart that's willing to sacrifice to see more people come to Christ. Let me show you the first one. Look at it from the text. 
You should have the courage to stand. Why? Because your conscience is bound to a higher authority. Look at verse 29. You get courage when your conscience is bound to a higher authority. Until you have that, you won't have the courage you need. You have to be convinced that God's word is your highest authority. I have submitted my life not to what feels right, not to what's popular, not to where the culture is headed, not to sadly even what some people that say they're Christians are blogging and saying, oh, we can't interpret the Bible like that. That's old news. We gotta change. We gotta change. We gotta change. Those who have submitted their conscience to the word of God as their ultimate authority will continue to have courage to stand. And those who don't, won't. They'll acclimate, they'll adjust, they'll change. Look at what the apostles said, verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. That was their answer when they received a legal injunction saying, it's illegal, you cannot speak about Jesus. So what is going on? The same thing that's been going on for centuries with true believers who have submitted their conscience to God's word as their highest authority. Vicki and I just returned from Germany where I had an opportunity to teach at a conference in Germany and Switzerland. And at one point, I was less than 50 miles away from a castle where Martin Luther hid after he defied an edict from the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor demanding that he recant of everything he said and written about justification by faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing. He was called in 1521 to the diet of worms. There were no worms there, but that's what they called it. And standing before them, they called him to, there was no debate. He was hoping there to be a debate. He'd have an opportunity to show from the scriptures what, why he believed this. No debate. They said, we don't want to hear it. There's your book stacked on that table. All we want to hear from you is that you recant of everything you've said and written about this. Now, he didn't answer quickly, folks. This was just a little monk. This was a monk. He didn't have the special robe and the pointy hat. Just a monk. And so he said, give me some time. And he spent an agonizing night in prayer before he stood again in front of them. The Pope, the Holy Roman Emperor, you need to realize in that day, the government and the church were one and the same. This would be like defying the President of the United States plus the highest religious leader, plus hundreds of leading authorities in all their regal robes and gallia. And this little monk stood in front of them after a night of agonizing prayer and he said, I stand convinced by the scriptures to which I have appealed. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. I cannot and will not recant anything. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. And then he ran. (laughs) Also very smart. Oh, but it gets better. As he hid in a castle, he translated 
the entire New Testament in three months into the common German tongue at the same time that Gutenberg invented the press. And when that New Testament in the common tongue of the people hit the press and copies swirled around the known world, it rocked the world with the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing that the Catholic Church had held captive for centuries while they still did the mass in Latin, which no one understood, and had the Bible chained to a pulpit and said, you can't read it for yourself. Trust us. We'll tell you what it believes and what it says. And as people read the Bible for themselves, it rocked the world. That's the same God we have today that delights in just using a simple Ordinary person without all the power and all the who's who to continue to build his church by his spirit all over the world. And don't make a mistake about courage right here. Sometimes we think courage is the absence of fear. I wish I could be courageous like Martin Luther. Ah, read the accounts of Martin Luther. He wrestled regularly with debilitating bouts of fear. So you say, what, what, is, what is courage then? What, what does it mean to have the courage to stand? Well, let me give you a definition because I think we're gonna need to get a hold of this in the days ahead. Courage is acting by the power of the Holy Spirit on an urgent conviction in the face of some threat despite anxious and fearful feelings. I'm going to say it again because I think we're going to need to put it into practice. What is courage? Courage is acting by the power of the Holy Spirit on an urgent conviction in the face of some threat despite anxious and fearful feelings. But let me show you the second thing they were doing that we got to keep doing today. You should have the confidence to speak up because this message of the gospel is still the solution to our biggest problem it's not education it's not clean water it's not financial this is the solution to man's biggest problem to be put in a right relationship with the god of the universe and until that happens there'll never be peace between other people on a horizontal level. It has to start here, 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 here. This message of the gospel is still the solution to our biggest problem. And in verses 30 to 31, it's like Dr. Luke is giving us the gospel in its most condensed, undiluted, distilled form. Because Peter's sermon captures the gospel in less than 35 words. In the original language, when he spoke it in the Greek, it was just 31 words. But those 31 words have been changing the lives of men and women, regardless of culture, regardless of opposition and persecution, all over the world. Look at it starting in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, By hanging on a tree, him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In these two verses, you've got his death on the cross, his resurrection, 
his exaltation and the glorious results of putting your faith in who he is and what he's done. Forgiveness of sins. Finally, from this chapter, I want you to see you should have a heart that's willing to sacrifice to see more people come to Christ. That's what's going on in verses 41 and 42. So they departed from the presence of the council. Very odd word next. Rejoicing. They were just beaten. They were just threatened. They were just intimidated. And they leave rejoicing. And that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Don't make a mistake. They didn't leave saying, oh, what wonderful pain. They left saying, oh, what a wonderful name. Jesus. And we were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That word rejoicing in verse 41 captures a sub-theme that you see running all through the book of Acts. This theme of joy and rejoicing. Joy and rejoicing. Oh, sure, the dominant theme in the book of Acts, absolutely the dominant theme is the message of the resurrection spread by the power of the Holy Spirit through weak, ordinary people in the face of persecution. That is the dominant theme. But folks, there is a sub-theme that is rumbling beneath the gospel and persecution all through the book of Acts. Because a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit and is focused on the main thing, trying to reach other people for Christ, will always be a very joyful church. Some of you keep wondering why you don't have more joy. Listen to me. You think you need more margin in your life. You need more comforts. You need more this. You need more money. You need a different job. Consider, how much do you wake up filled with the Holy Spirit? I'm not saying quit your job. We can't hire you all here at church. I'm not asking you to do that. Do the same job, go to the same gym, go into the same neighborhood, but wake up filled with the Spirit, focused on the main thing. Who? Who can I speak to? Who can I love? Who can I serve? Where can I make a sacrifice? Where can I raise the flag up the flagpole and and mention Jesus and offer hope and share the gospel? You will never feel more alive and have more joy. I never feel more alive and have joy than when I have an opportunity to point someone to Christ. I know you might be thinking, you're a pastor. We pay you to do that. I am paid to help you know how to do that also. God never intended to rock this world and turn it upside down simply by clergy who are paid full time. He's been doing it through ordinary believers who feel weak, who feel scared just like Martin Luther, but have the Holy Spirit and the word of God and the church of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit and the word of God and the church of Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, direct access to his throne day or night. You'll never have more joy than when you're filled with the spirit and focused on the main thing. Living for what matters most, which is not this stuff, not piling up stuff. Let me close by illustrating this point from the church in Iran again. Mark Howard has been working with Christians in Iran since 1990. And he says this about the explosive growth of Christianity in the country of Iran. He says this and I quote, it's a simple story that can be summarized in two sentences. Persecution threatened to wipe out 
Iran's tiny church. Instead, the church in Iran has become the fastest growing in the world and is now influencing regions around it for Christ. The Iranian revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and several pastors were killed. Many feared the small Iranian church would wither away and die. But the exact opposite happened. More Iranians have come, become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries combined together. And then he concludes with this. We are living in a time when many Christians are suffering for their faith, particularly in Islamic context. But the story God is writing for Iran reminds us that we have every reason to rejoice and remain confident in our sovereign Lord and the power of the gospel. We have the same thing. Sovereign Lord, power of the gospel. Wherever America is headed, we have the sovereign Lord ruling and reigning and the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in us. What about you today? Where are you in relation to Jesus Christ? He's not going anywhere, my friends. He's not going anywhere. After 20 centuries, he is still the most talked about and controversial figure who's ever lived in the history of mankind. The Library of Congress holds 16 million books. And of those 16 million books, there are more books about Jesus than any other historical figure, hands down. The runner-up is not even a close second. It's Shakespeare. Yeah. Jesus, there are 17,000 books about Jesus. But listen to me. Oh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I am so glad you're here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, listen to me. Do not start with any of those 17,000 books. I'm asking you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The original documents. You say, but I don't believe the Bible's the word of God. I don't care. Read it anyway. Read it anyway. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But here's what I'm asking you to do. Read it carefully and read it prayerfully, saying, God, show me who Jesus is. You say, I don't even believe there's a God. I still don't care. Pray that anyway. Read the Bible anyway. Pray that prayer anyway. Show me who Jesus is. It it doesn't matter where you're coming from, what your background is, what your education is, what your interests are. You would be a fool to not seriously consider who Jesus was. You may conclude at the end of the day he was just a man. You have that right. Do not conclude that based on blogs and quotes from other people. Folks, and don't, don't be misled. This whole notion of, oh, we've got a nation of atheists now. It's atheism, atheism, atheism. No, no, the small little group of atheists have just gotten very bold and have had some best-selling books like The God Delusion and God is Not Great. And they've got some leading spokespeople like Christopher Hitchens and, well, he's dead now. He knows the truth. And Richard Dawkins. But folks, 3% of Americans claim to be atheists in response to surveys, 3%. They're just a very loud 3%. So get this. 
If you could put all the serious Christians in two Greyhound buses, you could fit all the atheists in America in the backseat of a Prius with room to spare. All right? As they drive around in that stupid car, the window's down and they're yelling and they're loud and they're waving the books and they're obnoxious, but do not be fooled. It's still a Prius and it's very little. Christianity isn't going anywhere because Jesus is ruling and reigning and building his church. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. And if you're here and you're a Christian, oh, if you've been fearful and worried about where all this is headed as you watch the news, let me encourage you. Just get little news updates, turn it off and start spending more time here and I do believe you'll sleep better. Oh, if you're worried and fearful about where it's all headed, we know where it's all headed. Exactly where God said it was headed and we just get to be a part of it. We don't have to try to make anything happen. We don't have to wake up and think, how do we stop this tide of unbelief? How do we make a difference? It's not up to us to stop anything. We just get to get in on what God is still doing in our generation. He's raised us up for such a time as this. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the gospel, life-changing gospel. And Lord, thank you that for centuries, you have used people just like us. Still messed up, still filled with weaknesses, fearful, anxious, sometimes confused. But you've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us direct access to your throne. And you've given us the family of God as we hold on to each other, encourage each other. Oh, God, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's